Welcome to Above the Mess, the podcast where we bounce between our interests, dive down rabbit holes, navigate our brains, and come up in Wonderland. I'm Maddie Van Houten, and with me is Izzy Miller. Hey, Izzy! Hello, how are you? I'm doing good. Um, How are you, though? You've been traveling. I have. I just got back from California for work, my first time ever visiting San Francisco. It was awesome. Plane travel still sucks, but public transit's pretty great. Okay, you have to tell me more, um, because as previously discussed, I have little to no public transit ever anywhere in my life. So you have to tell me everything. (laughs) Okay, so I wanted to go to dinner in a strange city that I do not know. Mm -hmm. And I went into Apple Maps, because it turns out Apple Maps has a lot more features in California. Little bit of a tangent, but go figure. Shocking. And it was like, (laughs) yeah, there's just a train every two minutes for the rest of the night. What? And I clicked the little thing. It was like, here, you just need to get this Clipper card app. And I want you to know, the way they do it is with Apple's like express transit feature. So I literally just throw my phone at the terminal as I approach the train and get on without having to unlock the phone or anything. And it just took you where I needed to go. And then I did it again in reverse. I am so jealous. Okay, I need to experience this at some point. I... It's so hard to even convey what a difference it makes. I didn't have, like, the entire process of figuring out how to use the transit in this city was less complex than ordering an Uber in Austin. Oh, my God. And I know how to order an Uber. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm just, like, thinking, okay, so I have lived in multiple places in my life, but... (sighs) I I lived nearby New York City, and I visit my friends who live there. It's not even that good there. Like, we hopped in an Uber to go get dinner. We didn't take the subway. Mm -hmm. Um, And visiting D.C., Uber's there as well because the, uh, what's, I don't even know what it's called, the transit system there is a little bit sketch and doesn't run as fast. I don't remember what it's called. Also, it doesn't run after a certain hour of the night. And it's just like, why? Anyway. Yeah. uh, San Francisco, teach us how to do this. (laughs) I definitely like had the best possible SF transit experience in that I was in the area that is best served at a time when it's best served Mm -hmm. and not like doing the daily commuting thing. But still, it was so good. And I just, I feel like I need to spread the good word. Y'all, public transit, it's a good thing. And yes, it works in American cities. We just have to build it. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. To stop the car companies from buying all the tram companies and decommissioning them because that, it turns out, was a mistake. Wait, that happened? Oh, yeah. Um, You know the movie Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Yes, but I've never actually sat down to watch it. Okay. I know it exists. You should, but (laughs) the tram company being bought is like actually a major plot point in that film. (laughs) Oh my gosh, okay. Okay. That's fiction, but this happened in real life too. Okay. I feel like I need to like dive down this rabbit hole after we get off the phone. But yeah, uh, no, um, the auto industry actively like sabotaged public transit in the Americas in order to lead to the system we have today or lack thereof. That makes sense. But enough about trains onto planes. (laughs) Tell me about the plane trip. You said air travel still sucks. Air Um, travel still sucks. Um, I have definitely gotten better at air travel. I would like never again will I check a bag. Like, yeah. Once when I was a kid, we lost a bag while 
um, check that we eventually got back. And that was a pain, but that hasn't happened to me or anyone I know in a long time. But mostly it's about you arrive in your destination, you get off the plane and you walk out of the airport. Yes. This is the pro move. You don't have to stand around and wait. And it's it amazing. is so much better. <laughs> um, air tags on luggage is another good one. Like, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. If you do check a bag, I've heard that's really good. I haven't done that. But um, I think a good pro tip, if you can convince your company to do it, is to pay for more leg room. But I was unable to do that. And so I was cramped the whole trip. But, you know, Ugh. as the case may be. Um, okay. This is one of the times where I, like, feel lucky that I'm short. Because even I am cramped. Like, I'm not short, short, right? I'm, like, the average height for a female body. But I'm still cramped. Like, what about the six-foot-tall dude <laughs> sitting next to me? <laughs> Airplanes are so decidedly designed for discomfort. It's like the shitty plastic seats in the airport waiting area are more comfortable than peeing on the plane. That's factual. Yeah. Um, this is like, we don't have a lot of time to go into it, but. This reminds me of there's an episode of the podcast Maintenance Phase with um, Aubrey Gordon, and she talks about there's another co-host. Um, I'm really sorry. His name is Mike, but I don't know his last name off the top of my head. Anyway, Aubrey is the woman behind uh, Your Fat Friend, and they have an episode where she talks about her experience being a fat woman on planes, and it's just a nightmare. Oh, goodness. I just, like, can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. But you talking about, like, planes are designed to be uncomfortable for people who are not fat. And then you add in the, like, oh God, it's just like, oh, God, okay. It's like a rabbit hole. Let's just, like, talk about the fact that we know the average size of the American person. And airplane companies are still, like, insistent that we're all rail-thin um, businessmen smoking 10 cigarettes a day and living on whiskey. So... Yeah. And they still serve the whiskey. They still serve the whiskey. <laughs> We're not allowed to smoke anymore, but we can get a whiskey. Um, okay, so so travel tips are like air tags if you can. Don't check a bag. What else? Yeah, um, something I've started doing is I only have one packing list now that's for okay. basically all possible travel situations. And then I pick the subsets of it that are relevant for my trip. And so I never have to build a new packing list for a new trip, I just go to the main list and I figure out which items on it that I mark as optional or conditional I need to grab for this trip. Oh, okay. So, like, theoretically, you could have, like, a, a am I going swimming section? And this is the thing, this is the stuff I'll need if I'm going swimming? Yep. Like, if it's a beach trip? Okay. Th that's more or less exactly what I do, although I break it out a little differently and yeah. typically just mark optional items as with a question mark. And I'm. it's usually obvious enough why I might need, like, jacket question mark. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair. <laughs> you <or don't. laughs> that one does seem fair. Um, you may need to show me this list because, uh, despite being like immersed in the productivity world, guess who does not have a packing list ever and comes up with it the day before every single time? It's me. <laughs> I will absolutely share this list. It is okay. in my bullet journal where it belongs. Of course. Perfect. I would love it. Um, Okay. Anything else that's useful for travel makes it less suck? Is that a phrase? I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, sort of going on the one, um, bringing 
the bag on the plane carry-on thing is definitely like try to pack in one bag like mm-hmm. aim for layers and clothes that can be mixed and matched more than bringing like seven individual outfits you can yeah. get a surprising amount of space back by having a little bit more modular wardrobe for travel and only having one bag and planning to do a little laundry is definitely i think the way to go over trying to bring like two weeks worth of clothes agreed yep that sounds similar to some of the stuff I do. Um, travel with traveling. food. Travel with food all the time. Cliff My bars? partner. Cliff bars are great. Oh, I don't. I don't like. Oh, well, that, I shouldn't say that. I like the um, the cliff. Per- oh crap! What are they called? They're like a special kind of cliff bar. I don't know. They're coated in chocolate. They're delicious. <laughs> Hard to get wrong. They're coated in chocolate. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I always travel with food. My partner refuses to travel with food. Like, I'll be like, do you want any snacks on the plane? And he's like, nah. And then I pack snacks for myself. And he's like, what do you have in your bag? And I'm like, this is why I ask. This is especially critical for me. Because mm-hmm. I'm vegan. And so like, yeah. have you seen what they serve at airports? It's, it's oh, not God, exactly it's compatible. But like, just for everyone, the markup on food at the airport is so high that just mm-hmm. having... A couple of like cliff bars or dried fruit is another one I really like to bring. Dried pineapple. Mm. I think that might be the only dried fruit I like. Pineapple. Okay, I'm really distracted today. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about dried pineapple. Uh, (laughs) My mouth like filled with saliva. Sorry. (laughs) I'm recording before dinner, so. (laughs) Oh, that's that's even worse. I am just like loopy because. I didn't have a second cup of coffee today, so that's why I keep getting distracted, but you're getting distracted because you're hungry. So let's get back on topic. Bring food with you, people. Do it. (laughs) Like other tips, I don't know, travel less, but more quality or like Mm -hmm. fewer trips, more of the trip being good Um, or like. I would rather have two weeks in California once than to do one week in California twice. No, I get that. I get that. Uh Not always possible. But if you can, the less times you have to physically move around the globe, the better everything is. (laughs) Yes. This is especially true for like if you're going overseas. Mm -hmm. Like if you're traveling, I would say more than two time zones, try to stay longer. Because, like, well, okay, I've gone to Europe once. We only went for a week. The freaking, like, what's the what's the name of the thing? You get tired. Jet lag? Thank you. <laughs> Izzy, you are my in-brain dictionary sometimes. Um, the jet lag was terrible, and it felt like we had to run around, literally, like, rush through the week to get everything we wanted to do done. And this is where the American stereotype about tourists come in, like holding a camera to their face and just like running around and taking pictures of everything. It's because we don't plan for longer vacations. Um, Now, I understand that uh, that's likely because your job doesn't give you more than two weeks off. And I get it. It's terrible. But if you can, try to go for longer. (laughs) If you can work remote, highly recommend working Mm -hmm. remote as part of travel. Like take a week off at the front and the rear and work in the middle to experience a place mm-hmm. longer. Uh, not everyone can do that, unfortunately. Not everyone can. It it would be nice if everyone could. 
I'm just like thinking about like that kind of world. It would be cool. And I think last, plan less than you think you have the capacity for. Mm-hmm. You will want the option at least to take downtime and rest while you're traveling. It's packing the schedule tight to be able to do everything. Usually, at least for me, results in everything being a blur and not remembering any of it and being exhausted the whole time. Yep. So I have that same. I have that same thing. That happens to me too. Yeah. Also, like fully embrace if you need to lay in bed and watch some Netflix while you're traveling. I will not judge you. Like if you need downtime while traveling and you just want to lay in bed, do it. I don't even care. Like, I don't care if you're in Paris. If you need to lay down, lay down. Don't push through. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, you have covered like basically all of my travel tips. My other one was going to be, you do not need to bring 10 books, future Maddie. You're only going to be there for six days. You cannot read 10 books in six days. Don't do this to yourself. (laughs) This is where the Kindle excels or ebook readers in general. (laughs) Yes, it does. That is my only travel tip. Like, I'm just like picturing the backpack I would have packed to go somewhere for the weekend. Eight books. <laughs> I've got, um, it, this might be a common enough reference, but I've got one of those Fjallraven Konkin backpacks, like the kids' school backpacks, this size for a 13-inch laptop. And uh-huh. I have done trips with just that bag before, and those are the best, because it just fits under the seat in front of me in the plane, nothing in the overhead yes. compartment at all. Like, those are the best travel experiences, if you can get everything you need in there. Yes. Uh, do not underpack but definitely try to minimize the number of bags like the ideal is yes just that one bag i have managed to do that before with a purse and a duffel that is actually like the size of a backpack Mm -hmm. but has like compartments so i was able to put anything that i would have normally put in a backpack in this duffel so it was like clothes and stuff and it fit under it was like just slightly bigger than a backpack best trip my purse could even go in the duffel while i was like sitting so i didn't have to worry about a personal item in a bag i could just like grab the duffel and go nice loved it i'm glad travel went well did you feel like it was safe on the planes covid wise well my answer today doesn't match the answer a week after the trip but yeah it was fine when i went um yeah there was a certain florida judge and a certain mask mandate on planes that was certainly struck down and that certainly, I have feelings about that. <laughs> I have feelings too. <laughs> I think we all have feelings. I think everybody has certain feelings about certain diseases. <laughs> That's where I'm going to go. <laughs> YouTube will demonetize us if we say the name of it. So, Will it really? Oh my God. I don't know if they still do that, but. <sighs> Come on, YouTube. Ugh. Are we on YouTube? I don't think we are. No. Have we uploaded ourselves? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I, like, not I haven't done that. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Good to know we're on the same page. <laughs> I know what's going on with our podcast. Maybe. <laughs> Speaking of, um, we got a lot of follow-up for last week, or last Fortnite's episode. There we go. I'm going to endlessly think that we do this every week. Same. I just t- I just hope you all know that. Um, So lots of follow-up that we wanted to get to and just run through real quick. 
because there is so much of it. Um, last time we talked about the manufacturing process for modern clothing brands and um, front of the show. I hope you keep that in. I'm <laughs> friend of the show trains gave us a link to uh, a series that planet money from NPR did where they made their own t-shirt and followed the process. I've only had the time to have a quick glance at this link so far, but it didn't seem to have any actual talk of the cost behind each step or, you know, the ethics of those steps. Um, but it could still be an interesting read. And again, I only skimmed it, so I might have missed it. Um, so that was really interesting. And in the same vein, he uh, shared with us a link about Patagonia's supply chain. Um, Patagonia is one of those uh, hiker brands, I want to call it, you know, like outdoorsy type people. Sort they of. certainly used to be. Now they're kind of in that like weird space where they still cater to people who are hiking, but they're also kind of a fashion brand. Yeah. it's. A, I feel like a lot of these places are going that way, you know, but so... They, they are trying to be, like, 100% transparent about their supply chain. Um, it's all on their website. If you click – I've done this before. If you click on one of the, like, pieces of clothing that you like, you can see which farm the fiber was harvested from. You can see where it was manufactured. All kinds of things. Um, they're trying to get rid of all of their plastic and their clothing, um, polyester, things like that. And then uh, they also – will sell you used versions of their clothes if they have them in stock. So, for example, I'm thinking about getting some work pants for my woodland project, like thick, heavy, canvas-style pants, because I got bit by a lot of bugs. <laughs> like, a lot of bugs. Um, and they have used pairs of those pants, and I think I might get them, because I don't need brand new pants for that. They're going to get ruined anyway, you know? So these are some interesting things that Patagonia is doing in the fashion mm -hmm. industry. Um, and I just thought that was really cool. I really like their Warnware program. It's pretty hit or miss depending on what you're trying to get from them, but always worth checking there first. They might have what you need. And I've had good luck with the few things I've gotten from there. And yes. like their fair trade and their transparency is great. Of course, like they still will have like the cotton grown in Vietnam and then shipped to China or Taiwan for um, manufacturing and then ship across the ocean again, which is like still not great, but it's like better. Better is good. <laughs> they are at least telling us where everything is happening, yes. which is amazing because that does not happen. I think the only other company I know that does that is Everlane. And I'm not even sure if they tell you where the fiber is from. I think they might just tell you where it's manufactured. That's I don't know. probably true. I don't, I don't know them specifically. And like the thing is, I'm criticizing Patagonia here, but like, if they did that in a responsible way environmentally or in a properly sustainable way, like, we would not be able to afford Patagonia clothing, which yeah. is already very expensive. <laughs> it's already crazy expensive. Like, I buy one to two articles of clothing a month if I'm buying Patagonia, you know, like, that is... Not like you can't bulk buy Patagonia without like spending your entire budget. Like, I don't care how much money you make. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, I'm really glad they're transparent about their supply chain. I, you know, we always want them to be better. But the thing is, is like if other companies started to do this and started to tell us about their supply chain, we'd probably see that Patagonia is already doing a, a lot better than most. Oh, certainly. Like, a and lot. it's like, <laughs> 
my critiques of Patagonia are more to highlight issues with the system that make this the only way that you can make clothing affordably for people and oh, not yeah. to highlight Patagonia as a bad actor here. Like, yeah. It's it's problematic all the way down. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, so they're doing great, but we can always do better. Um, and I wanted to tell you, their war and wear program, when I was looking the other day for those work pants, it seems like they have, like, we have some of these used. Do you want to go to them? So you don't have to go separately to the program. Now it'll just say, like, you're looking at these. Check out the used versions first. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I think that might be an improvement they made. Um, and I will see if I can verify that for, you know, the show notes later. Um, so <laughs> Trains was on it with the follow-up. He also shared with us, um, This Is Love, which is um, a, another podcast. Episode 40 came out recently, and it's called Grand Four... Just keep these in. I'm just going to keep making these noises. Episode 40 of This Is Love is called Grandfather of the Forest, and it's about the American chestnut tree. Um, I don't know if... Izzy, I don't know if you've experienced the American chestnut tree disaster <laughs> ever. I have. I mean, my dad, my whole childhood was doing woodworking and boat building. And so I was maybe more aware than most of of wood. <laughs> yes. I assumed that would probably be the case, um, especially like woodworkers know. Chestnut used to be used for everything, American chestnut especially, because um, there's like this... There's like this saying that it used to be that a squirrel could climb a tree in Georgia and not touch the ground until they reached Maine just by touching chestnut trees. Like that, that is how widespread this tree was. And then in the early 20th century, a fungus was discovered attacking American chestnut trees. It had been introduced by, wouldn't you guess it, invasive non-native plants. And this fungus just decimated the American chestnut tree population. If you see an American chestnut tree in the wild, you are supposed to report it to scientists so they can go out and collect the seeds and try to breed chestnut trees so they can resist the fungus. Like, that is how bad it's gotten. Um, so the This Is Love episode goes into a couple in, I believe, New York, um, I can't remember, who have been planting chestnut trees in their backyard in it it's a huge backyard it's 100 acres they've been planting them for years um through the american chestnut foundation and trying to help bring back the american chestnut and this episode it gave me chills like i got the warm fuzzies and also like the oh my goodness what are we gonna do if we never get them back type thing so that was a really interesting listen we'll have links in the show notes amazing yeah i think there's only like a hundred american chestnut trees right now yeah, it's it's really bad. <laughs> and like these are trees that could grow a hundred feet a hundred feet tall and ten feet around. Yeah, and they don't anymore. They basically only make it to their fifteenth year before they're attacked and they die, which is upsetting. It's it's so upsetting. I think um, in the episode they even talk about they used to they used to live to be eight hundred years old. Can you imagine an entire population of any species that lived for eight hundred years? All of the trees now are only living to barely their adolescence. If you find a fruiting chestnut tree, tell a scientist, tell a biologist, tell your local extension so they can protect it. Please. <laughs> and if you want to join the American Chestnut Foundation, I am 
seriously considering it. <laughs> so that's interesting. Sad, but interesting. Sad. <laughs> Devastating if you think about it, but I'm trying really hard not to think about it. But I haven't listened to This Is Love in a while. I used to listen um, yeah. back when it first started. I really like the host. I really like the host, too. Uh, Phoebe, she does uh, This Is Love, Criminal, mm-hmm. and uh, one more, I think, now. She does, like, Phoebe Reads a Mystery that she started yes. during the pandemic. Yeah. Great voice. Um, definitely worth a listen. I still subscribe to Criminal. I don't know if I'm subscribed to This Is Love. Um, listening to podcast backlogs is hard. Just putting that out there. So I have no idea what's in my podcast queue. <laughs> That's a mood. That is a whole mood. Speaking of which, our next one, Trains brought up this article called Confessions of a Digital Hoarder because of our to-be-read discussion. (laughs) It is an article that dives into what happens when we use our phones and the internet to just try to offload memory. Things like a to-be-read list. Things like a podcast backlog. Things like, (laughs) what else? Like TV shows to watch. You know, Um, I haven't had a chance to read the whole article, but the first like half of it really on the nose like you do not ever need 26,000 recent photos in your apple photo library how recent can they actually be <laughs> 26,000 that would like what <laughs> i just i don't even want to look at my own number um but yeah i'm excited to finish reading this article uh maybe stop hoarding digital goods y'all there's an argument to be made mhm that like most of the railing against like this sort of digital tracking is very similar to I want to say Plato's arguments against stone tablets and writing. Wait, really? Oh okay. yeah, that it will dull the mind because you'll write things down instead of remembering. But like, <laughs> there is a threshold beyond which that store of information is no longer useful or mm-hmm. usable. Yeah, I think. I think this is more of a, if you offload ideas into a digital space and then never go back to look at them, did you actually offload them? Are they actually things that you remember? No. Right? Like, you have to interact with the... I will say, there is something to be said for not having to remember something or just, like, saying, this is in my head taking a space, I'm going to write it down, not because I want to remember it later, but so that I want to trick my brain into not remembering it. <laughs> yes, that is that is a good use for analog, digital tools, whatever. Like, I use that all the time. I was having um, a little bit of overwhelm earlier, and I literally just, like, sat down and was like, I'm just going to write everything I'm thinking. Cured me yeah. overwhelm. Don't need to think about those things anymore. None of them mattered. I don't like, know why it works or how generally it works, but it feels like it works for me. So maybe it'll yeah. help you. Maybe it'll help anyone out there who needs it. But I think the argument in the in the article, and again, I did not finish the article, so I have no idea what he was arguing, <laughs> um, was about, like, if you're pretending that you're storing these things for the future, like, are you making sure that this archive is going to go to people who are going to want it? Are you actually reviewing the things in your archive as things you want to keep? Or are you going to end up like that person who collects all copies of a certain town newspaper from 1936 to 2017 like do you really need all those copies of the newspaper probably not unless you're a library i don't know libraries are good libraries are good (laughs) i don't know i we could maybe talk about that in more detail another day but i just thought it would be interesting to think about and 
wanted to throw it out there. Indeed. And I, I didn't have a chance to read the article either. And so welcome to Above the Mess, the podcast where we don't read the articles. Uh, <laughs> the podcast where our follow-up comes in the day we record our podcast. So we have to sprint through it. <laughs> um, yeah. So this sounds like our fault. This sounds like something we could, we could change. It does, but um, I'm too tired to fix it this week. So it's okay. It will just be part of the mess. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> I like our mess. Our mess is kind of fun. <laughs> it's a good mess. It's a good mess. Um, speaking of good mess, that's not a good way to transition into that, but I don't even care. No, it's, it's not a good mess. <laughs> it's but. not a good mess. <laughs> We're going to talk about climate change. Yeah, we are. We are. It's not a good mess. Um, listener Ryan, friend Ryan, saw some article or data recently about us initially, at least like 20 years ago or so, being on an eight degree temperature rise at that Celsius, by the way, eight degrees Celsius rise trajectory. And I did some research. Um, the last time I saw that number was in 2015. So it might not even have been 20 years ago, but we were on an eight degree increase in global temperature trajectory, but that number has now gone down to 2.5. Now this is still not great, but it's less catastrophic and that's amazing. And so Ryan was sharing this with us as a way of saying like, there is hope things are getting better. And it's less catastrophic. It is still, I think, sufficiently catastrophic. Yes. But it's less catastrophic and less catastrophic is good. I put down, you know, it's even less catastrophic, 1.5 degrees. (laughs) And the reason I put this down is because I saw an article that was talking about how even if we do all of the Paris Climate Agreement stuff, and if we sign on 140 extra countries to that agreement and have them commit to it, we will be at 1.5% increase. And that's still, that is still catastrophic. That is still sea levels rising, people being displaced. I think I saw like 50% of the um, global population will be affected by climate change, even at 1.5% degrees. So things are getting better. There's always more we can do. Um, And just, you know, get out there and poke your Congress people and be like, dude, because they're most often a dude, which is unfortunate. Um, Hey, can you just like do anything to help, please? Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. And then when that's not enough, well, maybe we'll figure out whether or not it's possible to solve climate change under capitalism at all. Yeah. Um, It doesn't feel like it. It it, there's a pretty good theoretical basis for arguing that it's not. Yeah. I I would definitely recommend um, Tina Landis wrote a book, Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism, that Mm. I would definitely recommend. It's um, a lot of media talking about how capitalism isn't able to solve climate change, is very much focused on the flaws of capitalism and not focused on what the solution might look like. And Mm. this book, I think, does a really nice job of laying out how a socialist solution could look in reality and how that would um, have the the real impacts that were necessary in order to make that change and how specifically socialism is necessary for those kinds of solutions to be put into place. I'm going to add that to me to be read list right behind. um, It was recommended by someone else. Drawdown, the most comprehensive plan to end climate change or something. It's an interesting book. I'm excited to read a lot of, a lot of books I've had on my shelf recently about climate change because it's 
always at friend of mind these days. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that one. Who wrote that? Um, I think it was an, I think it was a compilation. So there's an editor. Um, I'm going to look okay. it up. It's on my bookshelf. I'm going to look it up for you though. Um, because let's see, draw down the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. It was created, written and edited by Paul Hawken. And I believe they have a website where they're constantly updating the most impactful changes we can make. So for example, I think the first one was actually initially, it was something about refrigerants, like disposal of refrigerants and changing over to refrigerants that don't impact the atmosphere or something like that. And that was done. So they removed it from their website and moved up the next most important thing to do to stop global climate change. So that's interesting. I feel like the most important thing is to get, you know, oil and gas money out of Congress. But perhaps this is more focused on individual solutions and judging them based on a quick description is probably not fair to them. Probably not fair to them. I don't know what their like their criteria is for best. Like, would it be Mm -hmm. most effective or would it be easiest to do and has an impact? Like, yeah. So I don't know what they're, I haven't even started it, but it was mentioned, I believe, on a podcast, and I don't know which podcast. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> but I will, interesting. Yeah, I will find it. I will read it, um, and I'm going to add the book you mentioned right behind it um, to listen to. So those are some those are some things to do for climate change, um, which actually brings me to my next thing. Um, Izzy, I said something about naturalism last time, and I just want to put this out there. It is not what I thought it was. Naturalism is a philosophy about thinking that the universe is only controlled by science, which is something that I generally believe in, but I'm also a bit of a little like hippie um, and like to believe that trees have souls, even though we haven't proven it. So I don't think I'm a naturalist. (laughs) I know it has that specific meaning in philosophy, but I don't know like what the general usage of the word is. I know it's pretty different from being a naturist. What's a naturist? Oh, my goodness. Googling. I love Google. Google's great. I'll let Maddie Google this one and tell us. (laughs) Okay. The first definition is a person who goes naked in designated areas. Thanks. Yep. (laughs) And then the second is a person who worships nature or natural objects. That one sounds more like me. I am not a nudist. Um, I'm just going to put that out there. (laughs) (laughs) This has been. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Please don't end the show on that. <laughs> oh, goodness. We're getting silly today. Anyway, so I just wanted to put it out there. Like, naturalism, still something that's closer to my, I, I think, belief system, but probably doesn't really define my belief system. A naturist in the second definition seems a little bit closer. Like, I don't know. Anyway. Still probably not the word I would choose to define myself as. No, because I don't think most people would look at the second definition. (laughs) And last piece of climate follow-up that'll kind of transition us into the second half of this episode is that uh, the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, the organization that um, is cleaning up the bay where I grew up, put out a report card in 2020, and the bay still has a D rating. So if you're not an American and don't immediately know what that is, the A, B, C, D, F scale is how we grade things in America. I think that's right. Yep. Some, some schools might put an E in there. I why why would you ever skip over the E in the first place? I just anyway. <laughs> I can't I can't get over that. It drives F me bonkers. F is for fail. D is for diploma. Is that really how it is? No. That's okay. just what we said in college when we were studying for <laughs> tests we didn't want to take. 
<laughs> I love it. Okay. So the bay still has a D rating and the dolphins are already coming back. I, I just wanted to point this out that this shows how little improvement can make such a big impact. Like, I wouldn't expect dolphins to be able to live in a bay that gets such a poor rating, but at least it's not an F rating. Yeah, D in this case, apparently, is for dolphin. <laughs> and dog, because my dogs are barking at us. Of course they are. <laughs> of course they are. Um, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. I did put a link to that report card in last week's show notes, but I'll put it again because it's very it's a very interesting read. It talks about all the changes that are going on in the bay that help or um, hurt that rating. And they rate you on smaller scales too. So I thought that was interesting as a way to, you know, uh, measure how your local climate's doing. Um, yeah. Speaking of local climate. Speaking of local climate, I literally screamed. Okay. <laughs> Izzy, I was down at the pond this morning and my dogs are still freaking out and you might be able to hear them while I'm losing this, but there's a beaver in the pond. There's a that, beaver. I love beavers. I love beavers. Um, Small asterisk. She might be a muskrat. I only saw her head, but she did let me get close enough, like 15 feet away, that I got a clear picture on my phone, and I've named her Hope. That's a but good name. That is a good I name, I love muskrats, right? too. I love muskrats, too. They're so cute. They like, they're like they like beavers, but they just have slightly different tails. That's super exciting, though. I, I always love seeing animals, like, show up in places they weren't or coming back and yes beavers and muskrats and these aquatic rodents just in general make me super happy every time i see them they always just they look so happy they make me so happy and i got close enough to hear this one munching on water plants and i was just like look at her she's eating (laughs) i was so excited i was so excited i got so many pictures um slightly like sad like under note here is the reason she's named hope um the last time a beaver showed up in this pond the hoa had it trapped and killed what the yep which if you do any research at all is supposed to be the last ditch effort on dealing with a beaver or a muskrat not because they are endangered now but because they are the keystone species we've talked about this before in their environment. If you get rid of a beaver, everything else starts to fall apart. I feel like HOAs are kind of the organizational embodiment of we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. That sounds accurate. I mean, this same organization had people asking them to kill the local snapping turtles. Like, we've talked about this. What? I just, like I'm speechless thinking about it, but the first thing I did when I saw the beaver this morning was well scream and start tearing up in joy. And the second thing I did was text my partner and say, "We need to figure out how to make sure the HOA does not kill this one." Like that's how immediate my reaction was because beavers like they do cause damage to trees, but they also only damage small trees, young trees, the kinds of trees that crowd out bigger trees that um, go up in smoke the minute lightning strikes that uh, crowd out other plants. You know? So like, hot take time, but maybe humans, the animals with the ability to adapt their environment to suit their needs exactly, should adapt those environments so that 
the animals who are already here can live in them. And you bring me to my next point. Some of the first things that you can do when a beaver moves into your pond, even if it's a stormwater pond, which is ours is, it's meant to trap the water from storms and from runoff. But it's also a natural pond. Like, it was installed to look like a nature area. So this beaver comes in, the first one, and starts making a dam. The reason that they decided to kill the beaver is because he was making a dam. I think it was I think it was a male beaver because I, as far as I can tell male beavers are the ones that focus on dam making and females focus on nesting. I'm not really sure. I need to do more research, but I'm sure someone will correct me. So, they decided to get rid of this beaver because he was damming up the stream that I've been um cleaning up and you know getting rid of invasive plants and turning it into a wetland and they were like uh it might flood the path and i was like you know what you can do to make sure it doesn't flood the path put in a spillway so that you know the water goes around the dam when it gets too high like beavers can't figure out spillways guys they are beavers we should be smarter than a rodent um (laughs) i get so heated and like other things you could do you can install specialized fences at the drainage end of the pond like so that they can't dam that up and block the drain there are specialized fences there are floating drains there are things you can do so why was your first instinct to kill this thing so i'm going to try to save hope i'm going to i've already started doing all the research pulling together all my sources and also on advice from a scientist friend ankanu started figuring out how to appeal to the pathos, the um, feelings of the HOA board. And my first stop is going to be, think of the children, (laughs) because that always works. So, Mission Save Hope is a go. (laughs) Sounds like a movie title. I know, right? (laughs) Saving Hope. Uh, Probably a rom-com. Probably set in, like, Backwoods America. Ryan Gosling plays someone, but he's actually just a minor character because they couldn't afford him for a main lead. Yeah. Uh, Someone's got cancer. That's what the saving hope is. You know, they're trying to save her. I'd watch it. I think we just wrote a movie. (laughs) So yeah, that that was my big exciting news today. I was on a... There's a beaver in the pond high for like two hours. It was great. (laughs) Rom-coms, though. Everyone needs to go watch Our Flag Means Death. Oh, yes. Because it's a queer pirate rom-com with Taika Waititi. How can you go wrong? It is on my watch list. I have to wait for my partner because we're going to watch it together. But I'm so excited. It looks so good. It was excellent. I can't wait for the second season. I hope there's a second season. I don't think it's confirmed yet. I think it's just probable. Okay, I'm going to watch it so that they have a number of viewers. Yeah, okay. It's going to be fine. We're going to get it back. (laughs) I haven't even watched it yet and I'm ready to save this show um, because it sounds amazing. It's so good. It's so good. I don't want to spoil it. It's just, it's so good. <laughs> Let's just keep saying that and maybe people will listen. <laughs> Go watch it. Go save it. All right. Um, I'm so excited to watch that. Pause the episode right now. Not because we're going to spoil it, but just because you should go watch it right now. Just go. Just go. <laughs> listen to us later. <laughs> oh, man. I'm, I'm out of transitions, Izzy. My brain isn't working. Which one do we want to talk about next? <laughs> How about editing? Okay. We can talk about this. Um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I have started editing my novel, right? I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago. I don't know. I can't remember if you mentioned it on the show or not, but you did mention it to me. Okay. So if you haven't heard yet, I've been mentioning, uh, mentioning, I've been editing my novel. (laughs) Um, 
it's got the working title of Secret Seer. It's been such a fun experience to finally get to the point where I'm editing a finished book. And I have to tell you why. Because I was doubting, like going into it, I put off starting to edit because I was doubting how good it was. Right? I was like, I'm going to read this and it's going to be freaking terrible. Yes, there are moments where it is freaking terrible. But I'll tell you this right now, I keep wanting to turn the page and try to remember what I wrote. That is a really good sign. So it's been wonderful. It's also been terrible. I've also like scratched through entire pages and said, why did I write this? Like I've written in big cap letters. Why? So ups, ups and downs, but it's been going really well. And I'm about halfway through. I'm so excited. That's awesome. Yeah. I've got... I haven't done any editing of long form pieces before. I've short and medium form a little bit it's really satisfying to see the work come together I can only imagine a larger project like that yeah I've never been able to write medium or long form without wanting to turn it into a let me rephrase that I've never been able to write medium or short form without wanting to turn it into a longer form project so finally getting to the point where my long-term project is at the point where I'm practicing my editing skills that I've been practicing forever but trying to figure out okay how do i make sure the character development from chapter one to chapter uh 30 i think it is i don't know how many chapters are in the book um from chapter one to the last chapter how do i make sure that that makes sense how do i make sure that i don't forget that this character exists by the time i get to chapter 20 things like that how are you solving those like how are you keeping track of that so right now, my first my first pass has been uh, just right on a physical copy. I remember you printing it. That was on the show. Yes. that Sorry. Yes, that was on the show. Um, yes, I do have a physical copy. I printed it out. So my first pass edit has just been going through. And, you know, if I spot a grammatical error, I try to mark it and say look up or um, misspellings and things like that. But as I'm reading through it, if I see, like, for example, the main character in the first chapter, I introduce her best friend. And then her best friend does not show up for the rest of the book. Right? So as soon as I noticed that was happening, I was like, where did Kara go? And I wrote that in big letters at the top of the chapter that I realized it in. And so what I'm going to do is, as I'm putting in the grammatical errors and the things like sentence structure that I'm fixing, as I'm putting those back in the computer, I am making a note to fix these types of plot points or these types of character art problems. And... um They're going to go into a big list. I'm going to do some brainstorming on how to fix them. And I have a couple of methods for like determining plot structure and character arcs that I use. It involves a lot of index cards and laying them out on the floor and rearranging them and making sure they make sense. Um, That's always fun. Yeah, it's super fun. I can post a picture of what I did when I was first writing, but I'm probably going to edit that when I get to that point. You know, it's probably going to be a slightly different Mm -hmm. process. So... That's how I'm trying to go for it. Um, I'm hopeful one of our friends has asked, or at my asking, insisted that he get a copy by June 1st that is ready to read to give me a deadline. So I'm hopeful that I'm on track for that. Seems like I am so far, but it's really hard when those deadlines are far out for me to tell. So fingers crossed. What's been the most surprising thing about editing for you? (sighs) The most surprising thing is that when I start, I can do it for a while. You know what I mean? It's not as uh, mentally exhausting as I thought it might be. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's the getting started at editing. It's almost like 
it's almost like reading for me. Like, because you are reading, but it's like an extra layer on top where you're like, how could I make this better? And I thought that that extra layer would be exhausting, but it's kind of its own creativity. And for me, when I get in a creative zone, I can stay in that zone for a long time. So I've been trying to lean on that. That's great. Yeah. It's amazing how many things the activation energy for is way more than the like energy it takes to sustain the thing. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, everything. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it certainly feels like everything. Uh, what was I doing today? Oh, I needed to make a list of what I was going to do for the day. And I procrastinated on that for four hours. And then it took me four minutes. Yep. Yep. That sounds about right. That does sound about right, right? Um, and I don't love that. <laughs> Want to know another thing I don't love? What's that? It's a term that I learned this week. <laughs> it's dopamine fasting. Have you heard oh, of this? I, I've heard of it. I haven't looked into it deeply, but I'm guessing you have some thoughts and opinions on it. I do. Okay. First of all, what are these dang biohackers trying to do to themselves? Are they trying to die? <laughs> I have questions. <laughs> From what little I know of this, <laughs> and let me try to summarize what little I know of it, because okay. it's fairly little. It's the idea that dopamine is produced by a lot of different things we do, mm-hmm. and it's used by the brain to indicate high-value things. So when we're doing low-value things for some definition of value, like browsing Twitter endlessly and getting a little dopamine from that, it like stimulates us into thinking we're getting a reward, but we're not, so we do it for longer. And this, according to dopamine hackers, like uses some amount of dopamine during the day. And that you can, by intentionally limiting the things you do that produce dopamine, they say you can like get better at resisting distraction. And there's probably a little truth to the idea that if you use Twitter less, you'll be better able to not use Twitter as much. But like, dopamine feels kind of essential to me. It is essential to you. (laughs) It is. It's essential to everyone. If we had no dopamine, we would not be alive. (laughs) Let me just put that out there. So... This came up and it came up on one of my podcast my favorite podcasts that I love and I listen to a lot. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk about that. It came up in a way that I think the intent was good, but the delivery was bad. Let's put it that way. Um mm. they could have talked about the the idea behind using less Twitter without talking about dopamine fasting, and I would have been completely happy. Right. The reason I got so riled about this is that dopamine fasting is the equivalent of a fad diet in the productivity space. It is someone yelling at you, stop using Twitter because your brain is um, high on stimulants. It's like, that's not how it works. And also, I need stimulants. (laughs) Like, that is how I live. (laughs) Um, So my first my first interaction with this is. As I was listening to this episode, I was like, hey, this means a really big asterisk for people who have ADHD. And the reason I said this is because people with ADHD need dopamine to give them that pre-reward 
to get started. Like everyone needs this to some extent, but the reason ADHD brains work seems seems like they work this way. Uh, science constantly learning new things about ADHD. We don't produce enough dopamine or, or something like we don't consume enough dopamine. We have some kind of receptor in the brain that is not doing what it's supposed to be doing with dopamine. So artificially giving ourselves more dopamine means that we might be able to start on that task. And like dopamine, to do a bad job of summarizing what it does, dopamine is not a reward chemical in the brain. It's more of a, there's going to be a reward if you do this chemical in the brain. Yes, that is a good way to put it. It is the anticipation hormone is a, is a good way to put it almost. Like you're anticipating that you're going to get something good, right? Um, it's very important for all brains. It's especially important for ADHD brains. So this is why I started to get riled. And I started to Google. And when you start to Google and you start to see all of the results are crypto bros or biohackers or people in that area, this is when I start to get worried. But luckily for me, I didn't dive too far down <laughs> because Wikipedia has an entry. And I will just put this out there. When Wikipedia tells you your thing is a fad diet, maybe you need to reconsider. Like, <laughs> like, what does it mean to fast from dopamine, right? Like, are you just not going to anticipate anything or to do anything that would cause you to anticipate things? Brains don't work like that. If you cut out one thing that would cause dopamine to be released, like, the environment you're in will replace it. Yes. So this is what all the psychologists are saying about this, right? They're saying this is not sensical because you need dopamine at all times. <laughs> like, but what the people who are advocating for dopamine fasting are saying is it's it's not really a fast. What you're trying to do is get rid of unclean sources of dopamine. And I hate the word unclean. I hate the word clean dopamine. I hate the word for clean food. Let's not get into that. Dopamine is dopamine. <laughs> what they're saying when they, they want you to fast is they want you to stop using technology to whatever extent you can because it's bad dopamine. Like scrolling through, I mean, like <laughs> scrolling through reels gives you that dopamine burst, right? Like because you're seeing something new every minute or so. They're saying don't do that. Some of them are even saying, don't eat, because food gives you dopamine. I'm hopeful that they mean don't eat certain foods, because they give you more dopamine, but I'm not really sure, because none of them seem to have that qualification. Also, don't restrict your diet without talking to a doctor. Okay. And like, <laughs> to contrast this with, say, digital minimalism for a second, which I've yes. done experience with myself, digital minimalism is about making a value judgment about whether a thing adds to your life or not. Yes. Whereas this, at least as an outsider learning about it, sounds very much like a cargo culted set of here are the good dopamine and the bad dopamine and don't do the bad dopamine. Yeah, it, that is basically what it is. Some of them are even extending bad dopamine, by the way, to social interaction. Humans are social creatures. Do not become a hermit. Like, I'm just like, ooh. Anyway. Or like, do, but do it for you and not because of... A biohacker. Crypto yeah, bros. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever these people are doing to their bodies. Um, so if you scroll far enough down in the Wikipedia page, it talks 
about the psychologists who are like, please don't do this to yourself. This is not how the brain works. They talk about if you want to stop using Twitter, digital minimalism or a like social media break is the way to do that because what you're doing is breaking the bad habit. You are not removing the dopamine. What you're doing is removing the middle piece of a habit. So if, if for example, I'm at work, my cue is I have just hit the build button on an app that takes 10 minutes to, to run a build in the cloud, which is ridiculous in this day and age, but it actually happens. I'm not even kidding. I hit that build button. So my brain goes, okay, let's scroll through Instagram, right? And then I get the reward of scrolling through Instagram while I'm waiting for the build to finish. If I go on a social media break and I uninstall Instagram, I'm not removing the queue, which is I have just clicked the build button. I am removing Instagram. So what I might do instead is go read a book. And that is probably a higher value activity, right? That's that's the way to do this. Not remove dopamine from your system. Like, they're achieving the same thing, but you're not insisting that people are unclean for being on Instagram. Yeah. I, I got really riled really fast, and it just felt so gross to suddenly experience a fad diet in a space that had felt so nice for a while. Productivity has its bad sides. But the type of productivity that you and I live in is kind of like, be kind to yourself and do what you love. Yeah, there's definitely another side. And this is one of those cases where it has has made us aware of it, let's say. Yeah. I just... But we can get riled up about that all day. So maybe we should call it here. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can find us on the web at AboveTheMess.com or at AboveTheMessPod on Instagram and Twitter, although Maddie informs me nobody says the at anymore, so whatever. And then I said it last time, so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You can find me at Stardust.fm and Maddie at FlexPotential.com. Talk to you all in two weeks. Two weeks. Go eat dinner, Izzy.